Welcome, guys, to episode 12 of What How. Today, we sit down with Matt Johnston of Red Rock Strategic Partners. Um, Matt shares his story of entrepreneurship straight out of college. Um, a few years after that, he decided he had to scratch an itch and join uh, the enterprise or the uh, business corporate world. And then ultimately, he found his way back into entrepreneurship and founded Red Rock Strategic Partners. So we have a good conversation around um, all of this and then what his business is doing now and what they're up to and how they're helping financial advisors uh, find their way in um, kind of this ever-changing world that we're in. Um, I'm joined by John Baranaskis. You guys have heard him on this podcast before. And here's the conversation with Matt Johnston. Well, listening audience, this is, uh, <laughs> what do you think, John? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could, you could try me instead and try to get him on the, 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 to get the sound quality better, whatever you think. I don't know. No, this is the way it's going to be, man. It's, yeah. uh, this is the beauty of doing this stuff. Yeah. Let's dial him up. All right. Got it. There he is. <clears throat> I had you on, I haven't had you on speaker on the on the uh, cell before so i um took that off as well so hopefully this is nice and quiet well whatever you're comfortable with i thought that before was better it was fine too this is great um are you good for for a little bit to catch up yes it's perfect love it um all right i'm joined so on the line also with us is john baranaskis he's a founder and ceo of sweet gum labs which is an ria based out of yardley pa so um he co-hosts the show with me and uh, adds a good ying to the yang um He's, uh, you know, doesn't come from the marketing side, so it's a nice uh, someone to bounce everything off of. Hi, nice. Matt. How are you? Awesome. Um, all right. So, Matt Johnson, Red Rock Strategic Partners. Um, Matt, I think it's probably best uh, I can introduce you as um, obviously founder and CEO of Red Rock Strategic Partners, but. Um, it might be best that, uh, you know, you give us a little, uh, you know, introduce yourself um, as just who you are and, and what you guys are about. Okay. So do you want me to go ahead and do that? or we Yeah, yeah, like please. It? No, it's, it's uh, very casual. Okay. Um, well, uh, so Corey, we've known each other for uh, a period of time, but uh, I'm 25 years in the financial services industry. Both started uh, Red Rock Strategic Partners um, after being in the corporate side of the financial services industry, uh, learning and, and uh, understanding all aspects of the business, and really found that there was a gap in uh, the industry, and that gap was really uh, around execution. And so um, we really felt, uh, my team and I felt, that if we could um, assist, assist leaders uh, in all aspects of financial services to really concentrate uh, on execution, that we would fill a gap that was uh, woefully needed in the industry. And so uh, we started out working with you know, large RIAs and, and, and large broker dealers and insurance companies and the like, really trying to take 30,000 feet down to, you know, sort of 10,000 feet in the, in the level of execution. And so that's really what we've been doing over the last uh, several years. Um, our business has sort of uh, developed and flourished over the course of time. All right. Well, let me, um, well, I'll scratch and, and dig into that in a minute because um, I'm super interested in that. I also want to hear a little bit about how you got started. And let me give you some background on the show. So 
our goal here. There's no real science. It's pretty casual, um, and there's no direction in which we can or can't go. Um, but to provide you some context, um, you know, I, I do have a few questions that I want to kind of ask to get us going. But um, the show What How, it's a podcast that really just aims to deliver an unscripted, natural conversation that illustrates the background or history and the unique journey of different business owners and entrepreneurs and other interesting guests like yourself that can help educate, entertain, or add overall success to the audience. And as I explained to you, um, our audience is pretty vast. Uh, we've got um, a large pillar of the audience is in asset management or financial services, but there's also folks that um, all the way down to folks that are, you know, own and operate uh, fitness centers and, um, and, and, and then there's people that just work in the corporate world that are listening. And um, so I'm trying, you know, I try not to pigeonhole uh, all of our guests or, or all of the conversations towards financial services. But uh, you came to mind the other day um, or a few weeks ago, and you've been on uh, someone I wanted to talk to um, since I've known you back at, in the, when I was working uh, with Hartford Funds. Um, <clears throat> so that's just a little bit of context. Okay. And uh, so let's, let's dig into it. I mean, how did you... You said you were in the corporate side of the business. What what does that mean? What were you before Red Rock Strategic Partners? Yeah, I really had sort of uh, three lives before uh, Red Rock. My first life was coming out of college and wanting to be an entrepreneur, but not really having a sense of what that meant or um, uh, how to get started. And um, I fell under a lucky star. I uh, met uh, an individual by the name of Tom Stanley who wrote a bunch of books. Uh, the Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind were really the most popular of those books. And uh, I loved his uh, philosophy on niche marketing and affluent marketing and um, felt like that would be an entree uh, into entrepreneurship. Um, he guided me to financial services and uh, I, along with a couple of partners, started a, a company uh, based in Atlanta, uh, helping advisors grow their practice, primarily by using niche and target marketing strategies. So it was a, a kind of coaching, consulting uh, business uh, for financial advisors um, when the industry was, you know, frankly, larger in terms of the number of advisors, but smaller in terms of the number of firms. So wait, Matt, out of the uh, gate, you went straight into entrepreneurship. Correct. Wow. Correct. Yeah, it was a kind of a leap of faith. Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, any entrepreneurial venture takes courage. Um, you know, candidly, uh, two of my partners were about 20 years older than me, so there was some guardrails, but um, for the most part, it was uh, feet to the fire, uh, dream it up, believe it up, and, and, and do it. And uh, and, uh, and enjoyed that journey uh, very, very much. Got, got lucky. We were in a, uh, a good market in the early 90s and was really able to work with uh, thousands of advisors in multiple firms and really learning the industry and also sort of the balance of entrepreneurship, how to you know, think about things like uh, you know, setting up an income statement and balance sheet, how to pay people, how to hire people, uh, how to keep the thing afloat when it's not going well, um, you know, those sorts of things. And so just had a great time, great time doing it. So was this business um – Red Rock strategic partners at the very beginning? It, it was not, but there's probably some elements that still uh, fit today. Um, the company was called Creative Management, but um, uh, there are probably some elements of execution that uh, I took with me from that experience in forming um, Red Rock strategic partners. 
this is super fascinating because I, I've, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, a handful of entrepreneurs on and typically what I have found is that they know they're entrepreneurs, but the safe thing to do was out of college, get a job. And then it's like, I can't ignore the fact that I need to be my own boss. And then they go into it. You just going straight into it. I mean, I, I guess you don't know any difference. So that's, <laughs> you know, eyes wide open. Well, I had, you know, I had some, uh, some guidance, um, along the way, actually several years later after the two stints in, uh, in big corporations. Um, and, and one of the things that this person, uh, sort of reminded me of is that, you know, I'm not a rule follower. I'm not a, uh, you know, sort of a process oriented uh, person. I'm really built around ideas and vision and competition and, um, you know, as, as this person shared with me, you know, running 90 to nothing with my hair on fire. And so I think that's probably some attributes of entrepreneurial success. Um, it's voted well for me in many sense, in many cases, but it's also probably been a detriment in others. Oh, um, all right. So you're, you've got yourself and two partners and these guys are older than you probably providing you and, or, or maybe keeping you in, in, in line. And you also maybe, um, I would imagine lighting a fire under them to get going or try new things. Um, what, what, how does that happen? How does that work? Where, where does that go? And, and you go off on your own and, and walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, well, it was, uh, um, you know, two people who had, uh, um, obviously more business experience than I. And so part of what we began to do was say, you know, what's the vision of this business? And the, the vision was to, to really make a difference in the industry and help advisors work with their clients more effectively. And so, um, you know, we, we had to tackle that. And, and then we went to, you know, we got three people here. Um, experience isn't the only thing going for us. And so how do we, uh, you know, think about roles and responsibilities? Who's our, you know, who's got the analytic DNA and who's got the sales DNA and who's got the, you know, the, the relationship management DNA. And we began to kind of divide and conquer from that, uh, from that perspective. And then we started, you know, sort of envisioning what we wanted the business to look like and who we wanted to share, you know, space and goals with. And, uh, that sort of led us to hiring people in different roles and, and, uh, uh, all with the endeavor of helping the industry be better. All right. So if I'm clear, that original business has morphed into what the business is today. It's not like you built a business with these two others and then walked away. Yeah, I actually did. Um, it's interesting. I, I uh, so I've been working uh, diligently, traveling all around the country, and uh, I actually got a call from two terrific people uh, in the industry that had senior level positions at Smith Barney. And uh, Smith Barney at the time was our largest client, and they said, "Hey, you know, we we would love to." to ask you to come uh, meet with us and talk to us about some things at the firm. Uh, I originally thought that that was going to be, you know, different opportunities to make a difference. And they said, Hey, we would love for you to be a part of our organization full time. And for me, it was an inflection point uh, in my life and in the, and in the business because I had to make a decision um, around, you know, staying the course with entrepreneurialism uh, or uh, experiencing something different. I was 28 years old, uh, almost 29 years old, and um, 
I, I, that the, the bug to be inside the enterprise to, to sort of have exposure to thousands instead of a few uh, to learn and sort of a massive environment was, was sort of very appealing to me. I'm certain that ego played a role uh, in my decision. Um, you know, people from New York city wanting this, you know, the Southern guy uh, kind of thing. And so um, I took the leap. Um, I sold my interest to those two partners and, uh, and went to work for Citigroup, both on the Smith side and city private bank side. Uh, something I never knew. Um, I never knew that you were a wirehouse guy. I was. In fact, I still to this day have probably a little bit of labeling or uh, at least having firms sort of look at me with that jaundice eye. Uh, <laughs> if, if they have a, you know, a view of, of, uh, of the wirehouse that, uh, you know, Who's this guy? What are his views relative to his experience as the wirehouse? But at the time, Smith Barney was uh, 550 branches in the U.S. and 12,000 advisors, and they were um, a, a, a juggernaut, but also a very entrepreneurial juggernaut. So <clears throat> decisions were made really at the local branch level, the regional level. Um, the, you know, the home office was really in support of at that time versus you know, sort of uh, dictating and leading, uh, so to speak. And uh, I have to tell you, it was uh, a phenomenal, you know, sort of next uh, eight years or so of uh, learning, being a part of different lines of business, uh, you know, um, uh, understanding of the, the corporate environment, the mission, and, and, and all of those things. You answered that a little differently than I thought you would, but uh, I, I, going, you know, an entrepreneur who doesn't necessarily want to follow others' rules heading into a wirehouse, you know, in financial services, uh, I, I didn't expect that answer, but that's crazy to think that that eight years, it probably added so much perspective to what you're doing or what you were able to build after that. I'm very grateful, um, you know, to, to have made that uh, successful on both sides. Uh, there, there was some give and take. So I, I was very, very fortunate to work for two of the best leaders in the industry who gave me every opportunity to, to go broad and deep, um, who forced me into opportunities that I probably wasn't ready for, um, that helped me mature when I wasn't, and just the, the, the learnings and the perspective from so many different uh, outlets um, is it, really uh, well, it was really interesting, and to your to your point, sort of sped my uh, progression up uh, amazingly well. Yeah, I mean, it, you obviously became familiar or close to things that you wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, you would have known about the way the operations and everything went, and advisors handled their day to day. But being in it probably gives you, you know, that just unbelievable learning. I want to get to Red Rock Strategic Partners in a second, but I want to hear a little bit about. Um, you know, you, the transition of, of the story of building uh, Red Rock Strategic Partners from, uh, you know, Smith Barney to where it is. Well, I had one more, one more interesting stop that I think uh, uh, helped round out my, uh, you know, sort of my experiences on the corporate side, which was um, I was uh, climbing and, and, uh, uh, really had aspirations to run uh, the firm uh, someday, and um, my father passed away. Uh, had a heart attack at the age of 53, and um, it was it was interesting that the light that I had for that uh, sort of extinguished. And being in New York and climbing the ladder, 
uh, sort of no longer was uh, important to me. And so I, I uh, left uh, Smith Barney and went to Regents Bank for a couple of years where uh, they had a broker dealer called Morgan Keegan. And I was sort of uh, assisting and helping to bring those two entities together. And what I learned from that experience was a couple things. Um, one was uh, the bank and the brokerage world um, are different and, and hard to coalesce. And two, um, they that the, um, the the business becomes difficult. Sort of the more moving parts uh, you place in it, and so um, after a couple of years of, of striving for that, I decided that uh, organizations were. Um, uh, had a hard time with execution, um, and so really, you know, found a passion in getting uh, organizations to, to to drive execution. So, um, I I, uh, I left Regions, and uh, about three months later, really, um, after talking to a lot of people, started uh, Red Rock Strategic Partners. The the litmus test for me was uh, talking to folks, asking them what the challenges were. And the challenges tended to be, you know, we're uh, steeped in our history. Um, our culture says that this is the way that it is. Or, um, you know, we thought about those things and, you know, a big consulting firm has come in and told us what our strategy is. And we can't seem to get it, you know, moving and off the ground. And um, I just felt like there was this this massive need for, um, as I said earlier, let's get the opportunity from 30,000 feet, which is, you know, decks of material and data points uh, to a place where people actually um, feel a difference as a result. And so that has been over this last 10 years, a real motivator uh, for me. Hi, Matt. Can you hear me now? It's John. I can. <laughs> All right, we're good. So uh, I guess my question earlier, and just, just to your point there, um, you, you've sort of grown up in the pre-internet and then sort of seen the transition into the, um, you know, where, where we are now as far as information goes. So how, how have you just sort of adjusted, uh, like before when the practices were more on their own in the wirehouses, you know, how, how have you seen that sort of shift in the last, you know, 20, 25 years, I guess, at this point? Well, you know, it's interesting, and it's, gosh, how much time do we have? Uh, so, you know, there, there have been really over the last four or five years, um, not, not just internet-based, but just massive uh, technological uh, change. I think there's uh, uh, between custodial uh, solutions, planning solutions, asset management solutions, from a technology perspective, there are you know, 40 or 50 different uh, technology sort of birthed over the last four or five years and firms are, and advisors are really struggling with what do I use, but more importantly, how do I optimize what I use for my benefit and for the benefit of my clients? So candidly, it has actually made our endeavor stronger because firms are looking for someone who has uh, not only experience uh, but also some empathy around what am I trying to deliver to my clients and how can this be these tools and technologies be kind of harnessed um, to serve those purposes effectively and efficiently. And so it's been, it's been a lot of fun to see the change. Um, it's been a lot of fun to kind of help drive adoption during this uh, and execution during this, uh, this period of time. Some of the other things that I think, are interesting, John, to answer your question more fully, perhaps, is there's been a little bit of an identity crisis. 
in the financial services industry, where advisors are beginning to sort of ask themselves, where, where do we fit? And, and what's my role? And will I be replaced by something else? Um, it, it, you know, can, can investors get all of their answers uh, online? And so this identity crisis has led to some interesting conversations at the organizational level and even at the advisor level to really sort of figure out, you know, where is the human to human experience and then how can that human to human experience be amplified uh, and enhanced um, with technology uh, versus muted um, uh, by, by it. And so uh, it's been an interesting journey from that perspective as well. Do you get the sense that, um, you know, I guess some of the old guard that have been around the business for 30 plus years, do you, do you think they, I mean, obviously it's a loaded question, but are, are they embracing change um, that I'm, I'm sure everyone sees that, you know, you can answer any questions with a quick internet search, but it's hard to actually implement that from a firm wide sort of policy. So is that, is that sort of a, a sticky point when you're you know talking to, to some of these uh, advisors? It is. And, and I would tell you that, and this is just totally my own perspective, uh, I think advisors, um, uh, their ability to change and navigate is, is actually far faster uh, than firms because not only have there been these new and innovative technologies first, but there's also been, um, you know, a thousand percent heightened uh, regulation in our industry. And so firms don't want to move uh, their organizations in light speed uh, for fear of, of making mistakes uh, or for missing important regulatory requirements or, or um, because of the size and the scope of their organizations. And so um, they, uh, they move uh, in a much more measured manner, which uh, almost creates friction between them and the advisors and the clients that they serve um, along the way. So that's another sort of point of navigation. Uh, it's been been really interesting, but I think advisors are incredibly resilient. Uh, they see the force for the trees in many cases, want to get there, and what they often struggle with is just you know, how do I get there and how do I communicate that with my clients. Does everything you just outlined, Matt, highlight what's going on in the migration to uh, of advisors becoming, you know, building their own business in RIAs and becoming registered investment advisors? You know, I think there's a number of, of factors that are that are driving that. Uh, not, not just a few. Um, so, so one is, and I love this, that there are uh, people out there who believe in entrepreneurialism and who, like me, want to run around, you know, nine and nothing with their hair on fire or who have a picture that hasn't been, you know, built yet. And they see, you know, sort of their uh, stake in the world, um, for doing good and helping others. Uh, by creating their own firms, RIA or, or uh, independent BD or whatever the case may be. Secondarily, I think a lot of firms, uh, you know, over-engineer and over-manage their businesses to the point where there's um, so much energy in uh, change um, for change sake as opposed to change for impact sake that uh, they get frustrated and and look for other. Um, you know, other alternatives. And then finally, I, I think, um, 
you know, there's always a compensation equa- equation in our in our industry, and, and as rightfully so. And advisors begin to look at what they're giving up for what they're getting, and that value proposition becomes imbalanced. And so, as a result of that value proposition being imbalanced, they look for alternatives. And I think that's created a you know sort of a a number of different segments of our industry that are really thriving and serving different contingents of clients. Candidly, I think the way that they want to be served and the way that they should be served. Do you find that, excuse me, it's easier? um, uh, We, I I knew you and we met, what, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. How much has the business changed in those seven or eight years? Is it easier for an advisor to uh, run a successful business today than it was then? You know, I'll answer that question two ways. Um, is it is it easy to get set up and started? The answer is yes. I, I think the hurdles to access technology or bundles of technology has become easier. Uh, early registrations have become easier. Some of the capital requirements um, are, are less than what they were. You know, some of the custodians and partners are, you know, kind of create an easy runway uh, uh, for getting started. In the same in the same frame, I would tell you that the industry is that it's it's difficult, and the and the way that it's difficult is um, we have you know do not call lists today. Uh, you know consumers are far more um, standoffish, and um, you know we've heard about referrals for you know fifty years, but I would say that credible introductions. Uh, to new relationships are uh, really, really important. And given the life cycle of, uh, of the, you know, sort of the wealth in the United States, largely in the greatest generation and in baby boomers, because millennials and Generation X haven't sort of hit their stride yet, um, those people's needs, those consumers' needs are different and they're beginning to live on wealth. And so um, this, this notion of riding on the market uh, is becoming more difficult over the course of time. So in many ways, it's easier to break in, uh, but it's harder to stay in, if that makes sense. It does. It still makes total sense. Um, a question I, and, and, you know, I want to try to keep it so that you're not giving, you know, a three hour conversation here, but for an advisors starting today, you know, let's say that they're, they're fairly well established in terms of, um, you know, their experience in financial services, but an advisor starting a business, uh, an advisory practice today, what would be some of your, you know, 30,000 foot recommendations? Sure. Yeah. So uh, a, no, a number of things. So first is, um, you know, be, be willing to walk through fire, be, be willing to be relentless. Um, just because technology gives us access and information and insight uh, into, um, uh, you know, clients and opportunities and segments and things uh, doesn't mean that uh, the work uh, level and the work commitment is any different. So um, being relentless uh, with with your uh, vision is really, really important. Number two is uh, a, a, a lifelong commitment to two things uh, or, or or two two things. One would be my uh, my technical competencies around uh, as many financial topics as possible, and the second and, and probably actually more important is the art of conversational competence. So the the you know most advisors businesses are a reflection of their own competencies. So if you look at the 
the, the DNA of their business, you find gaps and those gaps are really a reflection of, I don't know much about this, so I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to make it a big part of my business. Um, and so they've got to drive that technical competency and they've got to drive the conversational competencies and the conversational competencies, competencies I think are really the art of, of our business. Um, third is, is make a decision. And the decision is, you know, are you trying to create a lifestyle practice or are you really trying to create a business? And I've learned even in my own in Red Rock Shooting Partners and, and, and other RAs that I've worked with and the like, um, that neither one of those, those things are wrong or incorrect, but they create other choices. And so a lifestyle business is a, you know, a business where I'm trying to drive a lot of income. I'm, I'm trying to control my time. I want to work with people I enjoy. And, and growth is uh, like in the eye of the beholder, um, like beauty, right? It's in the eye of the beholder where a business, I'm going to make some sacrifices that I wouldn't otherwise make. I'm going to reinvest in my business significantly in the early years to reap the rewards in the future years, which may be a sale or uh, a transition that creates an economic event. And I think a lot of advisors struggle um, with those decisions. Um, they, they struggle with the investment. They struggle with the deferred compensation. Um, they, they struggle with building infrastructure um, because, you know, I want to make a bunch of money and, and I'd like to do that today. And so those are three things that I think are, are really important. Certainly, um, you know, uh, uh, being um, a friendly uh, um, consumer of technology uh, is important, but really focusing in on optimizing uh, that technology is, is important. Um, and lastly, I think you got to have a heart for clients. You've got to be in this business to make a difference in other people's lives. And if you, if you marry those things together, I think you've got a great formula for, for the future. Matt, do, do you think, um, do, do people actually believe that they're lifestyle practices or do they think most, there's most folks think that they're in growth mode or do you, do you think they have a hard time just sort of actually understanding what they actually are sometimes? I think it's the third one. Um, I really do. Uh, and I don't think, uh, frankly, that most advisors spend a lot of time thinking about it. I, I, you know, we've, we've heard the, the Michael Gerber, right, um, in it, not on it. Um, they spend so much time in it that they're not really sort of uh, levitating just above it and go, um, where are we going with this? Um, you know, if I look at my income statement or balance sheet, what does it tell me about where we are and what we need to where we need to go? Um, when we look at client segmentation, some of these other things, you know, you find advisors who are resistant to get rid of small relationships, or they you know, don't want to automate digitally uh, because they believe that you know the investment prowess they bring to the table is part of their value, and and so and so I think they it, it's it's I'm not sure where I am right now. And I'm not sure uh, what road I want to take um, going forward. And, and sometimes that becomes a detriment um, to, to, to uh, some of the advisors growth. What do you struggle? What do you guys struggle with, Matt, at the moment? Like, what's the biggest hurdle that you guys run into? You know, we are a, uh, a, a business that is, um, you know, an advice based business, but we are not a uh, recurring revenue business. So we are a recurring relationship business, but not a recurring revenue business. So we are in, uh, we, we always struggle with the balance 
of implementation versus acquisition, uh, not not uh, unlike uh, advisors. And so um, we we operate in a kind of a statement of work uh, sort of mode with companies, and and uh, and we're always uh, uh, struggling with that. And most. Uh, most private businesses that I spend time with, uh, both inside the financial services industry and outside, um, struggle with talent, and and we are uh, not immune to that uh, issue as well. It's not about it's not about people, and it's not about good people. It's really about the right people for your organization and your culture. It's really about the people that can do something that really creates leverage and makes a difference. That's sustainable, and and so um, we we struggle with talent uh, you know, all the time, particularly in a niche industry like financial services. You can't have somebody walk in off the street that really has no experience or exposure to the to the marketplace um, and expect them to uh, to make a, a substantial difference. And so uh, th- those are really two two things that we uh, struggle with. So when you say talent, you mean like scale of talent, like you can't replicate yourself. Right. It's, it's, uh, you know, again, there, there are certain people that fit in our industry, um, that, uh, understand the dynamics of the, of the industry and can speak you know, sort of intelligently and with experience over the course of time. There are other people who could look at numbers in our business and, and deal with it from that perspective. But, you know, then we're a McKinsey or an Accenture or you know, somebody like that. And, and, and we found over the course of time that folks who engage us, um, engage us because of our experience just in this industry and the results that we've been able to generate just in this industry. Sure. And then the first part of your answer there was that um, based on the challenges that you guys struggle with, with recurring business, is is that what a company or a, a firm will bring you guys in to help? And then they almost, you know, okay, we're done. And then it's the relationship has kind of been severed. Yeah, well, we have, you know, we sort of have uh, a couple of different types of uh, iterations like that. So we, we have had companies, uh, banks, insurance companies and the like, and, and you know from our prior relationship, um, Corey, that, that um, lasts for five, six, seven years and you, you know, you sort of migrate from impacting this line of business to focusing in over there. We've got another concern over here. Sure. And then we have, and then we have other engagements that are, we need a fix for this and that fix is going to take us six months to figure out or 12 months or three months or whatever the case may be. And then it's, um, thanks. And, and, you know, when we have something like that again, we'll, you know, we'll reach out. So the relationship is strong. The results are strong, but the, you know, the need and the budget is, uh, is not there. And then in other cases, um, and this is the one I hate because I think this, this, um, it is detrimental to the, the, you know, the momentum of the company itself is you have, you know, a, a leader leave and a new leader come in and that happens all the time in the big, in the bigger firms and that new leader wants, you know, their people and they want to paint the walls a different color and lay new drapes out, that, that sort of thing. And so you find yourself, uh, you know, sort of retelling your story and starting again in hopes that you can uh, maintain the relationship. Sure. Um, so here's a question I have for you, Matt, that I've always wondered and I never asked you. Um, I'll ask now. Why have you 
I mean, obviously, you're not going to leave what you're doing at, at, at Red Rock Strategic Partners. You guys are doing well. Um, but why have you never been or continued down the road of being an independent or RIA? Um, that's an, that's actually an easy answer, but it's one that I have struggled with over the over the years. Um, and, and, the, and, the, and the short answer is because I, I, I have a very strong value system on on so many things, and one of those was I never wanted, whether it's optically or actually, to uh, to to look as though we were competing with our clients. And so every time we thought about uh, an RIA or every time we thought about buying RIAs or whatever, um, it would either be do that instead of doing this or create a really strong case for why we're working with a bank or working with an insurance company that has retail clients, but yet we're operating an RIA uh, as well. The closest we've come to it, uh, Corey, is we, we started a company, uh, I started a company about four years ago called Red Rock Advisors. And inside of Red Rock Advisors, we focus solely on uh, private business owners and helping business owners confront their transition um, opportunity. So we help sell companies. We um, help them through the decision-making process of, you know, internal versus external sale, those kinds of things. And then we also provide um, to business owners a, a an assessment of their intrinsic value um, today and what they can do to strengthen that intrinsic value over the course of time as they move towards a transitional events. And we've been able to provide that those services to some of our clients uh, and their clients. Um, and that's been uh, well received, but never wanted to be in a position where anybody would have a question that we would, uh, you know, be in competition for clients or advisors or, or anything, anything of the like. But, but believe me, that has crossed our minds uh, several times. I'm sure. I mean, becoming or being, you know, quote unquote, the experts on it. I imagine that's something that you guys have thought about. Um, uh, let me transition. I don't want to keep you all morning here, but let me transition a little bit to the, on the business side. What does Red Rock Strategic Partners look like today? How many employees do you guys have? Um, yeah, we have we have ten folks. Um, we have a great uh, uh, sort of senior team. Um, John Rett, who was a you know, thirty-year uh, veteran in the industry, was a colleague of mine at Smith Barney. Um, we call him our, our chairman. Uh, he's been a great influence. He was uh, started. He was in Robson Humphrey Company. He started. Um, uh, a company called Alexander Key that became a part of SunTrust and then ran SunTrust Investment Services for more than a decade, which was the brokerage side of SunTrust. Uh, Lori Hardwick uh, is also a senior member of our team, and she um, had a story has had a storied career in uh, uh, Investnet and Pershing. Uh, so she has a, a great sense of the independent and RIA space. John and I certainly have brokerage and and uh, bank in our in our DNA. And so uh, we, we've, we've really had a, a great time and we've built what I think is a pretty good team. We're in a position to add some additional um, capabilities and, uh, and some manpower um, and lady power, um, both on the consulting side as well as on the technology side, because our business has really drawn towards adoption of tools and technology uh, inside of of, uh, of organizations, in fact, we're probably called more on that than anything right at this moment. And so, um, we're looking to add some folks that really have background in planning software, 
uh, in, in asset management uh, reporting software uh, and the like to really kind of scale that up um, in a meaningful way over the next uh, next couple of years. Has the business grown, Matt, um, more or less about the same trajectory as you would have hoped over the years? Yeah, it, it, it has grown every year with the exception of one year, and it was uh, 2017, which was the, you know, I think really the, the impact of DOL. Um, you know, there was so much uh, spend, uh, so much operating expense around DOL that in 2017, I think people were just exhausted. And so we had a good year, but not a great year. But uh, the business has grown from 2010 on every year, um, sometimes 10, 15%, sometimes 30, 35%. And really, you, you, you're not quite sure how to project it. Um, you just do what, you know, probably what good business practices are, which is maintain great relationships, good conversations, you know, healthy pipeline, a pulse on the industry. Um, and, and we've seen, you know, double digit growth, uh, you know, every year since. Oh, good for you guys. Um, so here's one that I'm sure you've thought about, um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with it, but it's something that I imagine you think about, and it's a testament to your character and your skill and capability, but, um, you have kind of the Superman complex or situation going on. Like if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, what happens to the business? Like you are, I imagine, you know, you're the guy that comes in when a, there's a big meeting or a big conversation has to be had. So can the business be successful without you behind the wheel? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question, a really difficult one. And uh, it doesn't put me on the spot, but it, it, it always offers pause. Uh, I think about that all the time. Um, we, we are in the throes of some different conversations right now about expanding the way we do business um, so that that is not the issue. Um, what I can share with you at, at this point is uh, the ability to really leverage technology um, and birthing some technology in support of many of the, the issues that we have spoken about that would create a different operating model and, and a, a fair amount of scale um, that we don't have today. Um, to, to do that. You're, you're absolutely right. There's, there is a lot of what I call psychic income in being needed. And for many years, I, um, lived off that, that psychic income of being the person who, you know, they really wanted to come to the meeting or speak at the conference or, or whatever. Uh, but if we eat our own cooking, then we know that there's got to be something stronger, uh, to have the business sort of grow, um, with or without you. And uh, we're working diligently uh, on that at this time and, and probably more to come in the coming you know, months. Matt, what trends are you seeing in the industry? What, what were your likes and dislikes? And what foundational structures do you see that you wish didn't happen or wish did happen when you're, when you're talking to your, to your clients? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the, you know, there, there was, uh, as the independent and RIA world, uh, began to grow significantly, um, and this fiduciary, non-fiduciary, this fiduciary less than fiduciary sort of discussion, um, you know, came to bear. I would say that uh, you know that was one that I felt was healthy, uh, but at the same time, um, a little bit destructive to our industry. Um, I, I uh, hope that our entire industry is uh, operates as a fiduciary. Um, 
many would argue with with me on that. Um, I think the lines are a little bit different uh, or blurred today uh, as um, wirehouses, banks, uh, even captive insurance companies are um, gaining a better sense of what fiduciary means, uh, how to describe it, how to manage to it, how to utilize tools uh, to deliver it to clients. So um, that may have sounded convoluted. I, I like the idea that the that there are multiple flavors to our industry. Um, I'm challenged by uh, the fiduciary notion and really ensuring that all of the industry operates um, in a fiduciary standard. So that's sort of one of those structures or, or standards that um, I thought about a, a lot in, in our industry. What what uh, the RIA and the independent space have really delivered to the industry is not is is a antithesis of cookie cutter and one size fits all. Um, I, I've listened to many an interview or podcast or, or talk to people, uh, and you kind of leave the discussion uh, going, wow. You know, that is really an interesting way uh, to drive a business, Um, whether an advisory firm has 25 clients or 2,500 clients. um, There's there's a flavor sort of for everybody that uh, that needs it and wants it. You know, another structure that uh, I I find to be uh, influencing and also a challenge is planning. And, you know, most uh, organizations are um, not really, uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't paint with a broad brush. We're doing financial plans. I'm not sure we're doing deep planning and counsel. Um, I think clients really deserve uh, planning and counsel. Uh, and many of the tools and technology are allowing for the nimbleness to do that. Uh, but I think we're sort of stuck in the prior decade, which is clients value a book. And let's make sure that they got the document and uh, everything that's associated with the document. So, you know, it's sort of our mission to kind of help um, firms and, and advisors understand that a little bit differently, um, and, and try to uh, deliver it a little bit differently to uh, to clients. The last one I'll say is is um, around the client dynamic, and you know, for years our um, currency was investment management and um, handling people's investments and their, you know, their asset allocation and their performance and their, this and the other. And, and I think there are so many different dynamics within the client's situation that um, we, we've got to take stock in. You know, one size does not fit all uh, with regard to uh, to our clients. They need different things at different times for different reasons. And when we operate in a really linear way, you know, it's hard to take care of them the way they uh, they deserve to be taken care of. And the last one to me is pricing, um, which uh, several firms and, and, and Red Rock have engaged in uh, some advice around uh, pricing. You know, you, you sort of have uh, uh, sort of three things going on. You have the old AUM pricing which really challenge uh, working with people who need you when they don't have the assets uh, that you need. Um, two is sort of this, uh, uh, price, this AUM pricing coupled with planning fees, um, which is sort of hard to wrap, wrap the, the head around um, and, and, and where value is. And then the third one would be you know, some uh, 
hourly or monthly or quarterly uh, you know, advisory fee. I, I think our industry uh, suffers more from consternation around pricing uh, than our clients do. Um, our clients are willing to pay for a great advisor who knows them better than anybody else and who advises them on all aspects of their financial life. I'm convinced of that, and I talk to clients who appreciate that. Um, sometimes our industry constrains us from a pricing perspective, uh, to be able to uh, to do that effectively. So there's a couple of things that pop to my head as we, as I as I think about your question. So what's the solution to that on the pricing? I mean, you named a few different options that you're seeing. What's you know, it's interesting. I, I think the AUM pricing still um, holds water, and and the reason for that is uh, it can be encompassing of the other. You know, attributes that advisors are delivering to clients, whether that's planning, interfacing with their CPAs and attorneys, you know, helping them get tickets, helping them with you know whatever the case may be, family dynamics and the like. I also think, uh, you know, I've seen a few firms do this where you know there's sort of this annual um, build quarterly uh, all-in advisory fee. Um, that sort of incorporates everything that they uh, are able to provide for the client. And um, I think that's a, a, a really good solution um, as well. It's transparent. It holds the advisor actually accountable to deliver on the things that they commit to delivering. Um, and, it, and it sort of gets a gut check, right? The client can come back and say, I got this. Um, this was worth it to me, and I'm willing to uh, to continue on on with you. So, um, I, I don't I don't know what the exact economic answer is, uh, Corey, but I do know that um, an answer that is uh, transparent um, creates a check between the advisor and the client on deliverables, um, and something that sets both of them up for the long term is the path that I would. Uh, that I would recommend. Yeah, I think the transparency part of that is probably first and foremost, uh, you know, all, all the way across there. Um, all right, uh, you've been gracious with your time, Matt. So let me just wrap this up with a few uh, little lighter questions. Um, let's say, uh, you know, put the money aside, but you know, say our, you know, Red Rock was gobbled up, you know, tomorrow. Any other business interests you have that that you would explore if, if uh, you know, that business was taken away from you and you had the financial security to do something else? Yeah, that's a boy. That's a great question. Um, I think there are, you know, my exposure through our little business called Red Rock Advisors. I found that a lot of private companies are avoiding the transition um, decisions and discussions, and I, I think it has less to do with what. Um, the economics of their business and more to do with the emotional side of, of, of building and running their businesses. That is, they don't know what they, their life would look like outside of um, the, the transition of that business or, or, or working in that business. And so um, uh, helping uh, businesses uh, confront those things are, is a passion of mine. If I had all the money in the world, I'd still probably do it for free just because uh, I respect the build and the blood, sweat, and tears that goes go into creating something from from nothing or building something from an idea, and uh, and would spend uh, time you know, doing that. Uh, another another thing would be, and I, I think there is um, a lot of opportunity to motivate people in our industry uh, to be better, just simply to be better. And uh, if somebody said, "Hey, um, can you come, you know, speak at?" Uh, 
various industry conferences and try to, you know, not motivate people for motivation's sake, but try to get them to see um, the privilege that they have uh, differently. I would be uh, be wide open to to that as well. And you'd be good at it, based on what I know. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Those, those are those are two things that sort of come to mind. I, I you know, maybe a third one would be uh, you asked about RIA earlier. Um, I do, you know, again have this passion for clients. So if somebody came out and said, "Hey, we want to take an RIA to a whole nother level, and we'd love for you to be a part of it." I, I'd certainly consider something like that as well. Uh, I'm going to give you a few Q and A's on the way out the door. So, um, has traveling worn you down yet? <laughs> there, uh, yeah, my wife would say yes. Um, there are periods of time where uh, travel is pretty intense, um, and uh, and it is and it wears on you. There are other times where you it, you know in the wee hours of the morning going to the airport, you have to remind yourself of the uh, the honor that you get in serving others, and uh, I, I kind of go back and forth of, of that. And then sometimes my wife reminds me that, hey, you've been in the office for two weeks, and it looks as though you may be going stir crazy, so you probably need to get on the road. Um, so there's a there's a kind of a neat balance. I mean, I've been traveling most of my adult life, and so it's it's uh, it's probably a part of my DNA. And, and I think if you don't travel often, you don't travel well, and so. Um, you know, you build the muscle and hopefully you try to maintain it. That's a really good way to look at it. If you don't travel often, you don't travel well. I totally agree with that. And the other thing that you pointed out, wives always know, man. They do. They, <laughs> they, 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 mine in particular knows me better than I know me. So that's, uh, that's a good thing. All right. Your favorite airport. Well, it's gotta be Atlanta. Gotta be Atlanta, busiest airport in the world. Sure. Um, and, and, and not because of the airport itself, but because when you're, when you're landing in, uh, in Atlanta, they know the six most beautiful words in the English language is we've been cleared to land in Atlanta. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that one. Your least favorite. Uh, I have to say, um, the, uh, you're not going to like this, but oh, come on. Philadelphia. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Um, I, they hadn't figured it out yet. Been around a long time. Hadn't gotten it together yet, but, uh, I'm sure they will at some point. Hey Matt, a CEO that you would be just excited to have dinner with. Well, there's so many, but, uh, you know, my, my hero and I, and I got the, the privilege of working for him for a number of years is Jamie Dimon. And the answer, the, the reason for that is because he is uh, relentless. He is um, incredibly dynamic. He's maybe one of the smartest, if not the smartest people I've ever been around. Um, he's got a lot of passion for the, the, the business and he sees the industry in really, really broad terms. Um, and I know when he says something, he believes that it's the right, uh, you know, the right thought or the right thing to do. And so he would definitely be at the top of my list. Yeah. I like that. He doesn't seem like a CEO. I mean, clearly, you know him better than me, but it doesn't have a lot of that pandering attitude inside of him. You know, the, the wall street pander, you know, do what, do what, um, you know, just to prop up the stock price behavior. Well, you know, I, I don't know all of the inside uh, story uh, in, in his life. Um, I, I've, I've met him several times and I've spent time with him. Um, I've read uh, books by him and about him. Um, but anytime you are taken out of something, it, it humbles you in a way. And I think uh, many of the things that have uh, been through, that he's been through in his life, um, have given him great perspective 
uh, throat cancer and other uh, things that he's gone through. And I also think he has a incredible passion for uh, the business. Clearly, he's got more economics than he'll ever need in his life or to make a kind of social impact that he's made. So he's there for a reason. And that's, um, you know, if more people had that same reason, uh, I think we'd be in a better place. A magic wand moment. If you could get everyone to stop doing a certain behavior, what would it be? Hmm. Um, Living in a box. Uh, would be would be probably my uh, my answer to that. Um, you know, the, the, the box of uh, I can only be this, I can only do this. My resources will only get me this far. Um, the industry only looks like this. There's there's never been anything like it. Um, so why would I try to do it? Um, just you know, just just uh, people tend to be so uh, much in their own box that they don't see their own potential. And uh, we've been privileged, not only in Red Rock, but in my in my career, to help people see a little bit more of themselves than they could see on their own. And so um, uh, that's what I would do if I had a magic wand. Love it. Um, in 30 years, you want folks to think of you how? Uh, just a passionate um, person that cared, uh, to be honest. Just, just somebody really, really passionate um, that, that cared about them, uh, that had integrity and values for serving other people. And, uh, the, the people will think of my name and say, you know, he shed a light on an opportunity for me or made me a little bit better or maybe think of myself differently or something along those lines. All right. Um, and last one, um, let's just let you get a good Red Rock strategic partners commercial in, um, you know, say that there's your next clients listening. What do you want them to hear? that you guys offer? Yeah, so we, we, we really tell, uh, tell our clients that our, our obsession is execution, which uh, is what we do. Um, we, we, we engage by listening uh, really, really intently. We focus on four areas, their strategy, um, is their strategy sound? Uh, if it is, then does their model and platform support their strategy? Uh, we find a lot of opportunity to serve there. Then we kind of get into productivity. Any great distribution uh, business has to have a high degree of, of output or productivity, and that's not just people, but systems and processes. And then the final area that we concentrate on is sustainment. How do we keep the trajectory um, long after we disengage? That's really important to us as well. And so um, we're, uh, we're excited about the opportunity today and looking forward to uh, the potential for impact in the future. Well, Matt, thank you for your time. I, um, I appreciate catching up. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I wish you guys and Red Rock Strategic Partners the best and I'll continue to follow and, and keep, uh, keep an eye on you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys uh, today and, and uh, thanks for the invite.